find your way back to your seats, know again that uh, we have Bibles in the back. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, uh, make sure to grab one of those. Those are our gifts to you. Um, it'll assist in following along. Also, um, I was having a, a talk earlier. Uh, obviously, like our phones make uh, available a lot of um, a lot of Bible apps, right, that enable you to just turn on and to read with us. Um, we read primarily from the ESV, and so if you're following along on your phone and you find that um, there seems to be some um, some differences, certain differences in what we are reading and what you might be reading, know that that's probably just a, a translation issue. And so if you'd like to follow along with what we read out of primarily, um, the ESV is available, a free app on your phone or the hard copies in the back at the table. So, um, we are in uh, what is really like a continuation of last week. Last week we were discussing from uh, Genesis 14, um, our great king's generosity. Um, That's not a misprint. We're really continuing into like part two of this observation of our great king's generosity. But I want to start by um, stepping back and making a few short statements about what we have been observing as we have worked our way through um, what is now 16 chapters, or will be after our time together this morning, 16 chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Man, it's been a blast. This has been so fun um, to go through this as a family each week. Um, So, as we journey through Genesis, um, we observe God doing a number of very specific things. Right. Each week we could make observation, and I encourage you to, right, to, to observe from our reading each week what God is doing. How are we tracing this story um, of, of redemption right, throughout history? And in this particular case, the book of uh, Genesis, there is um, a number of common themes that we observe. First, we see um, God warning his people through Moses not to become like the people of the world. Right, not to become like the people of the world. We think about where Genesis sits historically. Right, it's the first book, and following the book of Genesis is Exodus. Right, which is this retelling of God's setting apart of a man um, who would lead his people out of bondage and oppression and slavery in Egypt. Um, I love the way that Matt Chandler discusses the primary theme of the book of Exodus, um, which further helps solidify this point, and that is this, that God is not simply bringing his people out of Egypt, but he is bringing the Egypt out of his people, right? He's encouraging this set-apartness. This is a theme that we begin observing here now in the book of Genesis, but it's a message that um, is, is certainly prevalent for the people as they prepare to take possession of the land that the Lord has promised them, as they are being reminded of who he is and what he has done, as well as for you and I, right? That there is this set-apartness that we live in um, as citizens of a altogether different kingdom, right? A kingdom that functions within a different economy, God's economy, as opposed to the economy of this world. Um, God warns his people not to become like the people of the world, right? There's this this common thread from Abram to uh, from from Adam to Cain to Lamech to Noah to Lot. The message is the same. God is setting a people apart, distinct from the world, in order to bless and draw the nations to Himself. Right? This is what God's doing. God contrasts the kings of the nations of this world with King Jesus, a king. Set apart, 
right, from the kings of Genesis 14, in that he fights his enemy and ours through righteous self-sacrifice, right, that he obtains not, not spoils of war in a worldly context, but instead obtaining through his death and resurrection a crown, right, and an, an eternal reward that he then passes on to his people. This is where we've been, right, over the course of these um, over the course of these chapters, and this is what we observed last week as we contrasted the coalition of kings in Genesis 14 with that of the truer and better king, King Jesus. And so our goals this morning are um, going to be really fairly simple. Um, our goals this morning are going to be to answer from Genesis 15 um, and 16 a series of questions. But here's the deal. Um, we're, we read 15 and 16, but we are going to be primarily in um, chapter 15, and within chapter 15, we're going to be primarily in, like, the first two verses, okay? And so you guys see what I did there? Like, I totally bait and switched you guys all, right? Like, we read two chapters, but we're really going to be focusing um, on the first two verses of chapter 15 while observing some particular points throughout 15 and the broader story of 16 to help us understand again who God is and to answer these specific questions. And so our, the questions are simple. They're on the screens, right? Um, and so you can make note of these, and these are the things that we'll be um, unpacking as we work our way through um, 15 and 16 this morning. Number one, how does God shape our expectation for relationship with him? What does it look like to live in relationship, to live in fellowship, to live in friendship with God? Right? Well, well, here's one thing that's helpful for us to begin understanding, and it's what we're going to work towards a, a deeper comprehension of this morning. And that is this, that, that we exist in relationship with God on God's terms. Right? And so, so how does God shape the expectation of his people for relationship with him? Right, if you're here and you're, you're skeptical about what it means to follow after Jesus, what does God have to say about what ought to be expected in terms of living in relationship with him? That's our first question. The second one is this. How does our relationship with God shape our relationship with others? Right, we find that there is this connection between the two. Right, that, that as we exist in fellowship and friendship, informed and shaped by God's word, right, with God, then there is the other side of this coin, which is how we then now, as, as friends of God, live in relation to people in this world, right? And so those are the two, those are the two streams, right? These are the two threads that we're going to be unpacking. How does God shape our expectation for relationship with him, number one? And then number two, how does our relationship with God shape and inform our relationship with other people? Let's see what Genesis 15 has to say about this. Let's go to verse 1. We see in verse 1, God speaks towards his relationship um, with Abram. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 1. He says, right, the, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The word of the Lord comes to Abram saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, let's think for just a moment about what this statement follows. Right? This, this statement from the Lord here in chapter 15, verse 1, comes following Abram's interaction with the king of Sodom and a rejection of his material possession. So that, verse 23, this is from last week, right? that, that no one would ever be able to point to Abram and say, I made you rich. 
right? There's this, this super considerate, right? Super intentional response from Abram to ensure that God would receive all of the attention and adoration as he develops and blesses this nation. Why is that so important? Why is that, why is that noteworthy? Is that noteworthy? I think that it is. Right? I think that it's beneficial for you and I to, to consider the intentionality of Abram in chapter 14, going into chapter 15, knowing that by way of his action, Abram seems to be understanding and comprehending the ability to redirect glory that ought to be directed towards the Lord and for individuals to be able to point it towards themselves. Right? And so Abram intentionally, purposefully, right, rejects the spoils of war, desiring that God might uh, remain central in terms of people's adoration, worship, and appreciation, right? That he would receive all of the glory of what is to take place as this nation, as these nations are developed and blessed. God's call then in verse 1 is really simple, right? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This brings to the surface, right, a question that we are in need of of answering, right? A question that we are in need of addressing. That being, what could a man who had just defeated a coalition of kings with, if you remember, 318 men possibly be afraid of? It's an interesting call from the Lord, isn't it, right? Like, don't be afraid. Following Abram's victory with these, with these other men over the coalition of kings. What might Abram be afraid of, given the Lord's intentionality in addressing this particular feeling and emotion? Well, let's think of a few possible options and just begin to mark them off the list. Okay, Uh, number one, uh, perhaps it was his refusal to accept his proposed share of the spoils of battle. Right. Perhaps Abram is looking back on the interaction that had just taken place between he and the king of Sodom. And he's saying, wow. Right. Perhaps I could have used right and, and and benefited from receiving from the king of Sodom these these. Gifts, right? These, these, these after effects, right? These um, acquisitions from, from war. Maybe that was a bad decision, right? Like maybe that was a bad decision. Maybe I should have, um, maybe I should have taken him up on his, his, his offer. Maybe that wasn't the wisest move on my part to reject these, these gifts. Although I think that we can say super clearly that Abram's conviction in his refusal doesn't seem to support like this being what produces like concern and fear within Abram. So let's mark that one off the list, right? No, we're, we're marking that off. That, that probably um, is not it. Well, maybe then it's Abram's um, fear of a potential response retaliation from the king of Sodom, feeling as though he had been disrespected by Abram's rejection. Right? Wait a second. Like, I offered you this, and you're not going to take it from me, the king of Sodom? Okay. Well, like, let's just work this thing out, right? And my feelings are a bit hurt. My pride has been impacted. Who are you to reject what I am offering you? Although, again, this doesn't really seem likely. 
Okay, so let's move on. There's two that are marked off of our list. Is everybody following along? We feel good so far. Okay, so perhaps then it was um, the after effects of battle, right? That Abram was continuing to process, replaying over and over in his mind the events that had transpired. War being a challenging and, and difficult thing, right? Abram having undoubtedly witnessed some, some challenging and difficult things. Maybe it's this mental processing of what he had observed and been a part of. Maybe he's dealing with some type of personal injury. All of this is, of course, Speculation, But one thing that we can find from God's word is a clear and definitive answer. One thing that we don't have to speculate is how the Lord works in response to Abram's fear and worry. It appears as though Abram's fear and worry stems from the continued unfulfillment from his perspective of the Lord's promise in Genesis chapter 12. Right, to provide offspring for Abram, that the nation would be developed from Abram. Right? Okay, Lord, here I'm not sure like what's going on. And the byproduct, the after effects are um, are, are, are fear. Right? He's worried. He is concerned. We find fear here in this in this this particular instance. Coming from, stemming from unrealized promise. He continues on without an heir. The voices, the, the verses following make that, make that clear for us. Only we see the Lord doing some really interesting things in and through this particular position that Abram finds himself in, teaching him more about who he is. Okay, we see the Lord leveraging hardship. I want you to think about these things. I want you to write these things down. I want us to consider how the Lord leverages hardship in order to teach Abram more about who he is. Could the Lord have already begun building this nation in terms of like biological, physical offspring from Abram? Most certainly he could. We're going to see in just a few um, short moments, right, that, that the Lord is, is capable of producing offspring. We see this happening. Only the Lord doesn't. And in doing so, he leverages the posture of Abram in Genesis chapter 15 to teach him more of who he is. He leverages his hardship. He leverages suffering. He leverages difficulty. The Lord leverages anxiety, question, and confusion. Not to mention doubt in order to bring Abram into this greater understanding as to who he is. We said just a few weeks ago, in fact, I think we reiterated it a number of times last week, right? That, that Abram is, as he is called in Genesis chapter 12, possessing this super elementary understanding of who God is. And so the Lord in his kindness right, leverages hardship and fear in this particular season in order to draw Abram into a deeper realization. This is who I am, and this is how you ought to respond in light of particular emotions and feelings stemming from circumstance within this, um, within this life. I came across an article a couple of days ago, good resources, okay, 
Good resources are awesome. Surround yourself with super helpful, awesome resources that are like biblically sound and like informative. Okay, this is one that came from Desiring God, and it was it's all in the midst of studying for what we were going to be discussing this morning from 15 and 16. Across my Facebook, Facebook shout out, right, news feed, comes this article from Desiring God with five reasons that God allows your current suffering. Now, we can remove suffering from that, and we can go, why God allows like this, right, or, or, or this, or this, or this, right? The possibilities are endless. It doesn't, it's not limited to suffering, right? Our questions, our curiosity, the unknown, right, difficulty, all of the things that we've already talked about the Lord, leveraging. Five reasons that God allows your current insert whatever particular like place you happen to find yourself in. Um, and I'm going to give you these really quick. I think we have these um, to put on the screen as well. These are just like, I'm just dropping these off. I'm not really like elaborating upon these, but I pray that this is helpful um, to you. Number one, it brings us to repentance. Right? God allows suffering, right? difficulty, anxiety, question, Hardship, why? Well, because it brings us to repentance. Number two, um, it makes us dependent on God, right? In light of our current circumstance and situation, we realize how reliant we are on him. Number three, it conforms us to Christ. You think about suffering in particular. In this, in, in Abram's instance, maybe a degree of suffering, but certainly hardship and question and concern. The Lord leverages these emotions. Where's a piece of chalk? Here we go. I read it this. Yes, like this. This is uh, where we were last week. The progression to the right, right? One degree of holiness to the next. Genesis 12, 13, 14. It continues in 15 and, um, and 16, right? The Lord leverages suffering, hardship, difficulty, question, concern in order to progress us towards the image of Christ, right? To produce within us Christ-likeness. We realize our need, right? And by way of this, he conforms us into the image of his son, right? And so even now in Genesis 15, wait a second, I thought that this was a New Testament concept and principle altogether. We haven't even seen Christ incarnate on the scene yet. Well, no, this is what God's doing, right? He's doing it throughout redemptive history. He's transforming a people into the image of his beloved son, to the glory of his great name and the good of the nations. That's the message of Genesis, right? And so there's a progression that takes place. There's a degree of conformity into the image of Christ that cannot and will not take place in our lives apart from suffering and difficulty, right? Do we, do we get that? Do we understand that that's how that works in us, right? That if there weren't a certain degree of difficulty and hardship, there would be areas of our Lives left, like unsanded, right? Unpeeled away, unconformed. God is so committed to this work that he allows like a degree of sitting in this in order to transform us into the image of Jesus. Does that make sense? And we see that happening here in, um, in the life of, of Abram. God is allowing Abram to sit in this, right? In order that he might be conformed more into the image of 
of Jesus. Now, what we're going to find is like things just go like insane in chapter 16, okay? But that doesn't catch the Lord off guard either, okay? And so we're going to we're going to work towards um, we're going to work towards these realizations. Let's lean in and let's consider God's teaching um, of Abram in chapter 15 and Abram's response in chapter 16. Let's lean in to chapter 15 and let's consider God's teaching of you and I. Right, let's consider God's teaching of his people, the original audience and recipients of the book of Genesis. And Abram's response in chapter 16, the people of God's response historically, and you and I, as we continue to, to wrestle and to um, struggle and strive in this life as well. Here's, a, here's something I want you to make note of. Here we go. Um, we're, we're working through what do we learn about the Lord over the course of these few verses. First, we learn that God um, is a God who cares for and speaks to his people. Right? I am a God who cares for and speaks to his people. Right? Abram, I, I see your fear. These are all so valuable, and they're so important, especially if you sitting in here this morning are able to, um, to relate in a particular season to hardship and difficulty, right? Like if you're, if you're here and like you're just totally like unacquainted with reality, right, then this is not going to be most helpful. And I'm just going to pray that the Lord would like just wreck you over the course of our next few minutes together, all right? But if you're here and like you can say, yes, there are seasons in which... Right? I have I've been fearful, I've been concerned, I've been anxious, I've been confused, I've battled with depression. Then there's great comfort found in Genesis 15:1. The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid. Abram, I, I see your fear. I don't ignore your fear. Right? I, don't, I don't minimize your fear, but I speak to you right? in the midst of your fear. What do we learn about who God is? The God that we worship? Well, there's a few things. Write these down. We worship a God whose word possesses the power to create. Now we're going to trace these things up. And so we're going all the way back to the beginning. As is helpful in Bible reading to go back to the beginning and then to see like this, this argument, right? This scene developed and presented. We worship a God whose word possesses the power to create. We see this in Genesis 1 and 2. In addition, we worship a God who, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow, right? If we were to stop there, that would be quite impressive. Only God doesn't stop there, right? We, at the same time, worship a God who engages us. Right? We worship a God who, who creates, but we worship a God who doesn't stop at creation. Right? We, we worship a God who upholds, but he doesn't stop at upholding. Right? We, we worship a God who, who oversees and speaks life right? and, and, and hope and comfort into dead and hopeless and hurting people. 
We see this affirmed in other places. We've already referenced the book of Exodus this morning. Allow me to reference it yet again. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, we see this really powerful scene in which the Lord is calling Moses, right, who is composing this particular book, into um, this, this most unique relationship with him in which the Lord will work to bring about the deliverance of his people. And in doing so, the Lord says this, He says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Now, remember, we're talking about an enslaved people at this point. The Lord says, I have have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. But he he doesn't stop there. Although if he did, that would be incredible enough, wouldn't it? He continues on. In fact, he says, I know their sufferings. Right? So, so what do we know then about God? How does, how does this shape and inform the things that we are discussing from Genesis chapter 15? We worship a God who enters into the suffering of his people. Right, there's a, there's a foreshadowing element here, right? As we, as we engage with Exodus 3 verse 7 and we see this knowing, the Lord's knowing and comprehending the suffering of his people, we can, we can reflect back on what we know to be true in light of the completion of the canon and our access to it. God's whole word. Right, that, that Jesus would enter into the suffering of his people. That before the foundations of the world, there's this plan to, to rescue a people, right? And that God is familiar with. We see that God is intimately acquainted with the human condition. That is so comforting, right? Right, that God is, is with his people, that he hears his people, that he is acquainted with the spiritual condition of his people. This is a message that we are in need of being reminded of. Amen? Right? Like, like this is the message of Moses to the people of God. And it's our message this morning that God has spoken to us. And he's spoken to us in his word. Right? These, these 66 perfect books. Right? Totally absent of error. Right? Totally incapable of being wrong. God speaks to us through his word, and he speaks to us through his son. The word made flesh, John chapter 1, who moved into the neighborhood. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Our God is not one who creates the cosmos and sets them in motion and then checks out on us like an absentee father. Now, if that is your experience, right, if that is your understanding in light of some really poor theology and perhaps personal experience, then I say from the bottom of my heart that I am sorry, right? Uh, 
in response, I want to point you towards the one true living God who cares for and about his people. We see here in Genesis 15, 1, that God hears his people and that he responds, right? He, he responds to where they find themselves. In each one of these points, we're going to explore a subpoint. This is our first one, right? It's more this idea. It's this concept. We're kind of like just, I'm not working on points this morning, okay? So if you're like, I'm confused. What's point one? Like, I don't know. Like, write this down. This is what we're going to kind of work from, <laughs> right? If you happen to develop one, catch me after, and I'll add it to my notes, okay? In each one of these, we're going to work towards a, a subpoint. We're going to introduce a theological truth followed by an application. Okay, so we've got this truth, right, informed by what we see in Genesis 15, verse 1. And then we see what it looks like to, to live in response to the nature of God. Okay, so, so here is the nature of God. Here's who, here's who God is, and here's what this will look like. Let's kind of practice with the first one, and then we'll kind of like, we'll continue on through the next two. God cares for and speaks to his people, right? There's the theological truth. So what then is the application? Well, here it is, okay? As, as we are made to recognize God's heart for us, right, caring Comforting, pursuing, and speaking, we as his people ought to care for and speak to others. Let me say that one more time. As we are made to recognize God's heart for us, the Lord intervenes in our dead and broken condition and he breathes life into us. He revives our, our dead hearts and gives us hearts that are, that are new. Right? And in doing so, we observe his caring, his comforting, his pursuing, and his speaking. In response, we as his people ought to care for and speak to others. What does this look like? Well, we see people as people. And you go, well, wait a second. Like, how would I see people apart from people? Well, um, how about like projects or objects or inconveniences? This is not how we are to see people. This is not how God's people are to see people. We see image bearers, right? And we, and we see souls. We ought to care for and speak to others, to approach the hurting and fearful with compassion. Now, the question in all of this is why? Like, where do you get that? That sounds wonderful, but like, how in the world like, do we bring that home? Well, we live this way because God does this, right? Like, we desire to do this. We desire to practice this. We lean into this because this is exactly what God does. We, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Right? Through, through great and tremendous loss. Right? And, and through great and tremendous gain. As a transformed people by the strength of the Spirit, loved by God, pursued by God, we are to seek to now love, care for, and speak to others. There's this recognition in this that what we say matters. This is incredible. <laughs> right? Like, I am so in need of being reminded of this. 
Like what we say matters. It matters that we use our voices to speak towards issues that matter. That we speak towards issues that matter from a gospel perspective. Like I'm just going to be really honest and really transparent with you. Like my goal is not to use my voice on like seventh tier issues. Like issues that simply just are like not that important. Like if we want to conversate about what these particular issues mean and like, you know, I mean like awesome. Like I'm, I'm, that's, that's wonderful, right? But, but there's this encouragement I think that we, that we see as we lean into this to, to save our voices, Right, to use them right in ways in which um, people like take note and listen, right? Our desire as God's people ought to be to faithfully and confidently speak the gospel within public square. Right? To to speak the gospel into culture, right? Into into our community and into the lives of of others to lean into the questions and conversations taking place in our days concerning issues like issues that matter like like the exclusivity of Jesus right like that 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 faith in Christ alone is capable of rescuing our weary and dead souls we lean into and we, we speak towards and about these issues. We lean into and speak towards issues pertaining to, to reconciliation, right? racial reconciliation and, and reconciliation within broken families. The power of the gospel to do this, family relations, human dignity. All as we wrap our arms around the distinctives of the Christian faith and our only hope for life, Christ Jesus. I'll give you a great example of how this works itself out practically and some insight into like my own mind and struggles. And so just prepare yourself. This may get crazy. Okay, so um, one, one observation that I've made over um, the course of like the a year and a half or so that like we have been planted is this. And I've had this conversation with a number of our team leads who do an incredible job. Like you guys know who you are. I love you and I'm so incredibly grateful for you. It's basically this, is, is I desire on Sunday morning, and this is just this is practical here, right? I desire on Sunday morning to use my voice less. And here's what I mean by that, right? Like I would love to see God's people here within this fellowship be equipped to do the things, right, that I am that I'm doing. Right? Like to, to from all like all aspects, like welcome, right? Like what's up? Hey, welcome to Christ the King, right? Like like that part, like the reading of the scriptures. I feel like this is an area that we've done a really great job incorporating. China did a great job this morning reading from God's word. Like we can all like do this as God's people, right? Now there's also a selfish reason that I desire that, okay? And it's this. It's that I don't want by the time we get up here or I get up here or whoever gets up here to exposit Genesis 15 and 16, I don't want you to be so tired of hearing my voice or someone else's voice that you just are like out, right? Does that make sense? You're just like I'm like I heard you do announcements and like read the scripture and like send the king's kids off and then like bring us all back and like your voice at this point is like a Charlie Brown episode, right? You know what I'm talking about. 
It's just like, ma, 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 okay? And so, like, my desire is to save my voice. I'm like, hey, man, like, I want to I wanna come before you, right? Before God's people, right? And to, and to proclaim the truths of God's word and you not go, all I've heard is Kirk talk this morning. Now, I think that there's a way that we can lean into this, like, practically for each and every one of us and say, am I, like, so speaking towards issues that do not matter, right? That when I say something, like, of, of, like, real, like, eternal significance, nobody listens. Does that make sense? Like, do we get what we're saying there? there there's this encouragement here to, to lean into, I believe, right? Like, issues that, 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 that matter. In Genesis 15, 1, we're still in 15. You're, like, two chapters, really. Like, ambitious goal. Um, 15, 1. B, part two, right? We see the Lord's desired effect, right? He, he, he speaks to and pursues after Abram in this really incredible, like, way that informs the way that you and I understand his, like, pursuit after us in this really incredible way. And then he calls him, right? His desired response is that Abram would flee from fear, right? That he would not be afraid. Right, that the questions and the concerns that seem to be captivating Abram's mind here in Genesis 15 might be, might be slain, right? And that he would find confidence in God who made this promise in chapter 12 to develop a nation, to bless in this really, really particular way. Resulting from the promise of reward in 15C and D. There's like four different parts to like this first, this first section. So, th- so there's where we begin. God cares for and speaks to his people. That's number one, right? We talked about the application that kind of that follows. Secondly, in 15C, okay, God promises to protect his people. Now, interestingly enough, we find that this is a promise that is connected in various other places directly with his presence. Now, this is hugely helpful and important in terms of understanding the redemptive narrative as a whole. Right now, God's goal and desire right through the advance of his glory over the scope of like human existence and on out into foreverness Right, is, is not only to like expand his glory, but these details of his glory, that he is rescuing and redeeming a people and bringing them into his presence. Right, that he's, he's rescuing a people in order to exist in this beautiful, intimate fellowship with himself. Right, that's a part of the redemptive narrative. And so it would make natural sense then that, that the promise to protect his people coincides directly with the presence of God with his people. In Genesis 26, 24, the Lord appears to Isaac and he says to him, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Abram, Abraham, we're going to get there in just a few weeks. And so don't be too confused if reading the Bible is, is new to you. We're talking about the same guy here. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, he says. And I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. There's a connection here between the protection of God and the presence of God. A a protection that takes place on multiple planes. 
Okay, so let's break this down and let's understand how this happens. First, we see this protection against earthly powers. Think about what we observed in Genesis 14. Right, you've got Abram pursuing after a captured lot, warring against a coalition of kings with 318 men. It's a great example of like divine strength and protection, right? And so, so we see it manifesting itself in like a super practical way, like very close to where we find ourselves this morning. In addition, we see the Lord committed to the protection of his people from outside powers. God says to Abram in 15c, I am your shield. Well, what does that mean? What does a shield do? Well, like at times it covers, right? Like maybe from the front or from the top, right? If you're like facing, uh, Judah's been watching Robin Hood recently, right? Um, we don't really do kids' movies. It's just a thing. He kind of like is not doing that, right? He's like, no thanks, no Winnie the Pooh, no Mickey Mouse, more Jurassic Park and Robin Hood, if we can do that. So we're like, okay, like we'll try that for a while. So anyway, you can give me parenting tips later. I receive them all. Okay, so um, anyway, you've got in the show, like they're, they're these arrows, right? They're like bow and arrows, and they're firing them up, and they just come down. And as I'm talking about it, I'm like, we probably shouldn't watch Robin Hood, Um with our two-and-a-half-year-old, but it's kind of happened, and so now it's serving this purpose. So, but you get these, like, guys, and it's just like, like, just dead, right? Like, ow, right? Or, like, or, or, like, marred, or, I mean, it's just not well, right? And you're like, hey, what would really help this situation? A shield, right? Like, something that they might lift over themselves to absorb, right? That that would bring and produce protection um, and continued life, right, for, for these, these poor, poor souls, right? God says to Abram in 15c, I am your shield. He says, in essence, I'm, I'm covering you. And I'm covering you not because of who you are, but I'm covering you because of who I am. All right, Genesis 15, 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now over the course of the next few verses, we're going to see this ever expanding spectrum of Abram's understanding of the goodness, kindness, and generosity of God. Right at this particular point, Ben Clark and I had a really interesting conversation on Monday morning about this particular promise. And, and he brought to my attention, and this is just so helpful. This is why it's great to read the Bible with friends, right? Like read the Bible with your friends, okay? Um, but he said, and we are familiar with this, right? If we were to be outside of the city and could look up and there wasn't a ton of light pollution, we would be able to count, to, to number the stars, right? Visible and observable, right? In the sky, maybe, right? We would like lose count, count some twice, but maybe we'd get into a ballpark of like, a, like, like this, right? We could count them. But, but God is going to expand the spectrum, Abram's spectrum, of his goodness and kindness and generosity and his commitment to this great promise. If we were to go out into the same field and we were to take a telescope or even some binoculars and we were to look through them, there would be light, stars, visible, that we would otherwise not be able to see. And so as the Lord speaks to Abram, it's almost as though he's saying, 
right? Like you're going to be able to observe and, and maybe even to a certain degree comprehend like a small degree, a small portion of this promise. But like there's a lot that you're not even seeing, right? Like it's much bigger than your finite mind is even able to fully comprehend. And the same is true for you and I. Like we get a glimpse, right, into the, the kindness of the Lord. Right, his character and his, his nature. But even with all that we know and all the resources available to us, man, it is but a like drop right, in the pool <laughs> of the character and the nature of God. I love the way that one um, popular systematic theologian speaks about it. And he says this. I believe it might, it's either Millard Erickson or Wayne Grudem. My systematic teacher would just rail on me right now for not knowing. Right. But but he says this, that, that what you and I have to look forward to in eternity is is this uh, is this existence. Right. With God in which we right, whether we wake up or just we exist or we continue or whatever that kind of looks like, we never grow tired of our of our position. Right. Of our location, because God is eternally and immensely good. And we are never, even on into eternity future, capable of fully comprehending his nature and character. Right. That we will say we sleep, wake up every day and we won't go. Oh, more learning about God today. Right. Like more worshiping Jesus today. Right. But we'll wake up and we go, man, everything that I know and all that I have learned, even in your presence, right, I'm still advancing. Like I'm still learning and I'm still growing in deeper appreciation and adoration of who you are and what you are doing. We see a glimpse into that here in Genesis 15. And it's going to continue on. God's presence and protection are byproducts of his steadfast love and faithfulness to what? Well, to his mission, right? to the rescue of, of sinners and the redemption of a people. Abram's righteousness is a result of faith and confidence in God's commitment. Right? It's, it's not his own work, as will be affirmed in chapter 16, which we're going to connect in just a moment. At this point, if Abram's confidence is in his own work and ability, that tower comes crumbling down in chapter 16. Okay, And so even if that's where Abram finds himself, if that's where you find yourself this morning, just prepare. Right? Like, just prepare because, like, like, no, like, this is not the way it works. Right. And God will um, bring you into this realization. God's promise is to protect those who trust him, who have faith in him. Abram shows us this here in Genesis 15. But Jesus shows us this in Matthew 23. Background. To Matthew 23, Jesus is in preparation for his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion in chapter 26 and 27. In chapter 23, he looks over Jerusalem and he laments. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to lament? I mean, it's to like, to be sorrowful over, right? Like to be, to be broken over. And he says this. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. He he says in essence this, how often I would have called you under the protection that I provide. If you're familiar with hens and broods, farmers in the house, anyone? Right? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll learn this together then. Right? And, and storms, oftentimes, as, as rain or hail beat down, a mother hen will call underneath her wings for protection her, like, children, right? Or chicks or whatever hens have, right? And she calls them under her wings and she spreads her wings out and she uses them as a shield, as a form of protection so that they're just not, like, pelted to death by what is falling upon them. Jesus says in Matthew 23, how often I, I would have called you under my protection, the protection that I provide, protection from the punishment that you have earned as rebels, right, from a, from a holy God, protection provided as I take your place, becoming a curse so that you could receive my good reward. Did you see this, this aspect of God's character, right, being being affirmed for Abram in Genesis 15. We see it fully manifest and understood to an infinitely greater degree in Matthew 23, 37, as we observe Christ on his way to the cross, understanding what is being accomplished there. So we see God cares for and speaks to his people. He promises to protect his people, but in terms of theological and applicable, where do we begin to see this transition take place? Again, God shapes the way that his people live, right? Here's the theological. We've just got through unpacking it. Promises to protect his people by way of his his presence. As we benefit from the protection of God, we ought to seek the protection of others. Why? Well, because of who God is and because of what God has to say about them. Again, on two levels. Number one, we live mission communicating clearly humanity's separation from our creator because of sin. And his just judgment coupled with the hope of rescue and shelter in King Jesus. Tim Keller says it, and man, it is is such a beautiful picture. There is no rescue from the king. There is only rescue in the king. Christ, by taking our place on the cross, acts as a shield for sinners who look to him as Abram does, confident that he is the Messiah and the giver of life, that God is faithful to his promises. We are a people confident in the sufficiency of Scripture and the work of the Spirit to show us our sin and draw us into salvation as we look upon Christ Jesus. We live mission, communicating these things clearly. In addition, secondly, we do things like speak for the oppressed, right? For the, for the widow and the orphan we care for and speak out for. We speak for the marginalized. We as God's people act as a shield of sorts, 
absorbing, absorbing hardship in the world as we seek to shelter and protect those without voices. We're just a couple of months away from filling up a table with baby bottles, right? We're going to pass them out and we're going to fill them with change and everything that we bring in is going to go towards supporting the ministry of the Pregnancy Resource Center. Why do we as a church, why does the church, why do God's people speak out for the voiceless, right, children? Because God, God cares for and about those who bear his image. Right? And so, so God, a speaking God, we desire to be a, a speaking people, speaking out for these particular groups. We've got to go on. We've got to close this thing out. God cares for and speaks to his people. God protects, promises to protect his people. And then thirdly, God rewards his people. God rewards his people. Now, some of you, when you read this, you might immediately think of more of a health, wealth, prosperity perspective. And so let's just go about um, like obliterating that. This is not a health, wealth, prosperity sense that so many understand God's work of rewarding in. It's not primarily about material possession and gain, although we do see that in this story, God is gifting his people with a land as well as um, in our world. We see God's people, recipients of gifts. God gifts and blesses individuals to give gifts and be blessings that enable his people to engage in his mission. We do that every week. Like we give tithes and offerings, right? So that we might do ministry, that we might meet needs, that we might translate or see the translation of the book of Romans into the language of a people group without access to one of the richest books in the canon. We are grateful that God gives material possession to his people that we then might give that material possession back, right? We see that he... That he does this. As we mentioned last week, Abraham has just um, rejected the material possession that came along with victory in war. In response, again, to the fear of Abram, God points towards a greater reward that Abram and his people were to obtain. A land, look with me at Genesis 15, beginning in verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Isn't it interesting that the Lord revisits here and reminds Abram of what he has already accomplished? Right, in order to affirm confidence and create and foster confidence in what he had promised to do. But the Lord, but he said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to me, Bring uh, bring me a heifer three years old, a, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, uh, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, there's this dreadful darkness that falls upon Abram. Remember what we talked about in Genesis chapter 1, right? Wilderness waste, darkness in which life does not exactly flourish. God creates this, this corner, right, in which he might plant his people 
that they might be about the work of flourishing, thus advancing his glory out into the world. Here we see that there's a dreadful darkness, and what happens? Man, the Lord speaks into it, doesn't he? Like he, he speaks, he speaks into it. He says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land. Things are going to be difficult. That's what he highlights here. That is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Holy cow. Verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Man, isn't that awesome language? Like good old age. Verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. And he goes through just all of the advancement of this land and its boundaries and what is to take place here. God makes a covenant with Abram. God makes a covenant that is greater than Abram could fully comprehend, that rested on his faithfulness. Not Abram's faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Again, as we observe in chapter 16, as we see that he makes it while Abram is asleep to give his people a land that they are preparing to walk into. Now, what's going to happen when God's people go into this land? Well, we see some insight. One thing we know is going to happen, and one thing that we know has happened, is that the Lord's presence has followed with his people. Right? It's his presence has followed with his people in this really like, interesting scene of a pillar of like, fire and a pillar of smoke. Right, following with his people. And we're talking out of Genesis right now. We're talking about the reading to the original audience who have enjoyed, again, the presence of the Lord in this really unique way, an interesting way, and like awesomely terrifying way. Right? Now, as the people go into this, into this land, we know that in the future there is a, 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 a structure right, that is to be built. And within this structure is to reside what? The presence of the Lord right, with, his, with his people. Right? There's, this, there's this interesting connection, the presence of the Lord with his people. God makes this covenant signifying his presence dwelling among his people. We're working towards a greater fulfillment. We see it fulfilled in, in, Old, Testament, uh, in Old Testament history, but even to a greater perspective, we know that it is to be filled and is being filled. As a blessed people, knowing fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, as God's people, we ought to bless others in specific ways that we have already mentioned. We won't go any further because we've got to begin, um, we've got to begin landing this thing. God counts Abram's faith in verse 6 to him as righteousness. Okay, hang with me here as we trace towards the end. Abram is approved by the Lord. He is justified as a result of his confidence in God to accomplish his ultimate purpose in Christ. In connection with this, what we find 
and have stated through three observations is that one's being justified before the Lord does not and cannot stop with our new position, but it must result in a transformed practice. Here's the way Eric Mason has to say it, a pastor out of Philadelphia. He writes, Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, being counted to us, being implanted within us by faith leads to our being made right with God as well as, now that first one, again, incredible. Like we are rebellious sinners made right with God as the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. As it's given to us, as it is gifted to us by faith. But it doesn't stop there. Right? It continues on. We are made right with God as well as being participants in the making right of things here on earth, knowing that Jesus will return and bring completion to the work that he has been doing through his people. And so we take the theological and we take the applicable, we take the practical, and we go, these appear to exist on two planes. We even broke them up that way. But in actuality, there's this like connection between the two, right? Like that when we talk about the theological, if we disassociate that altogether from the applicable, then we're not fully understanding the theological, right? If we observe God's speaking to a people and we say, yes, thank goodness God has spoken to us. We have access to his word. His son has, has pursued and moved into the spirit now indwells us. Yet we don't speak. Then we've like totally missed it. Right? Like the theological, there's a disconnect. If it's not coupled together, then we've got some issues that we need to be about considering. In Genesis 12, 1 and 2, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Ultimately, through this nation and the coming of the Messiah, but also through your being set apart. Right, reflecting God's good character and God using this to draw others into set-apartness, election, and new humanity. And so how do we close? You're like, we even get to chapter 16. I know. Here's what I'm going to give you. It's a mess, okay? 16 is crazy. You would think in light of all of this, you talked about, we talked about in the beginning, how Genesis, even in creation, is almost this roller coaster, right? How it's like, Whoa, like high point, that's awesome. Let's just hang out here, followed by like this, like plummeting, right? Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 1 and 2, fellowship with God. Man, a helpmate, suitable. This is beautiful. Let's just chill here. No, plummeting into sin, right? This story over and over and over again through Scripture. Things are going well, spiral down of sin. Things are going well, spiral down of sin. God elevates his people out of spiraling down of sin. If we stopped the story at the end of 15, we'd go, man, high point. This is incredible. Yet then we come into 16 and we see that like, there's just this total disconnect. And we say that and we diagnose it in ourselves, right? That, that there is this tendency that we possess. We've got, got to stop talking. There's this tendency that we possess to try to do things in our own strength, Right? By way of the flesh as opposed to faith. There's a distinction in those two things. There's this encouraged faith. There's a recognition of faith in chapter 15. And then we come into chapter 16. And there's this like total perversion that takes place. As Abram and his, his wife right, seek, seek to supersede the plans of God. right, Making an offspring for themselves. 
we see in Abram, his wife, and their response in 16 to what we observe in chapter 15, what you and I so often do in our lives. And so here's what we want to do. We're going to close. This is it. Here's what I want us to do as we come to the table today. I want us to consider the character and nature of the Lord and how the theological ought to inform the practical and our oftentimes disassociation of the two. I want us to acknowledge and repent right, of, of sin in our lives and a failure to appropriately respond to the good news of the gospel. Right? To, to live in light of who God is and what he has done. To find comfort and satisfaction and joy in these truths from God's word. And instead, so oftentimes, as we observe in chapter 16, seeking to take the wheel, right, flesh, and respond as we perceive in our fallen and broken condition that we ought to. The encouragement from 15 and 16 is confidence in the character and nature of God and an appropriate response to who he is in our world as we live as a set-apart people desiring to see more people be set apart. Does that make sense? Hey, let's pray.